Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. Harold McGee's book on food and cooking changed my life. I doubt my copy is even all that readable anymore, given that I unwisely kept it in the kitchen, where his teachings on how and why to use certain oils, or that the most moth-bitten basil leaves can be the most flavorful, suffused every dish and almost every page. It's fair to say McGee changed modern cuisine, too, when the kings of molecular gastronomy are also crediting you for their inspiration. McGee's latest book, Nosedive, is a companion encyclopedia to that 1984 classic on food and cooking, and it focuses on the most overlooked of our senses, smell. When we bring a fresh oyster or a glass of wine to our lips, what makes us detect a minerality or a grassiness? When did the molecules that we smell first appear? And what happens to them when we transform our food, whether through cooking, fermentation, or some other process? Harold McGee, who has been writing about the science of food and cooking for more than four decades, joins us to talk about the universe of smells, which he dubs the osmocosm. Thanks for chatting with me, Harold. Pleasure. Pleasure, Stephanie. So I'm not surprised, given that this is your book, that you've been working on it in a fashion for over a decade, and that the inspiration goes back even further to your first grouse. <laughs> so can you tell me about that grouse and the journey to understand it that followed, how this small British bird led to such a big book? Well, <laughs> actually, this the story starts back when I started writing about food, which was in the 1970s. Uh, hard for me to believe that. Um, and I was interested back then in flavor. That's that's what attracted me to the subject in the first place. But back then, we didn't know much about why things tasted the way they did. And, uh, you know, what, what was in the food that stimulated us, what was in our brains that uh, registered what was going on. So I couldn't really write that much about it. Fast forward a few decades, and uh, in the 2000s, we had learned a lot about both of those things. And um, uh, I thought having put together on Food and Cooking second edition, it was time to really focus on flavor. And as that thought was in my mind, I did go on this trip to uh, the UK and happened to be there during grouse season. Grouse is a wild bird and it's hunted uh, in the fall only. And uh, so there's a very narrow window of time when you can enjoy it. And I went to a restaurant and ordered it and was chatting with the uh, the chef there and uh, took my first bite and uh, he was worried that I was having a stroke <laughs> because <laughs> I was just uh, flabbergasted and speechless and you know couldn't really focus on what he was saying or what I was saying. I just had to pay attention to this thing that was going on in my mouth. The flavor was just really intense kind of meaty uh, to the nth degree, but also kind of on the verge of tasting rotten, <laughs> which is what got my attention. And, uh, you know, for a second there, not having had it before, I wasn't sure that uh, that was intentional, <laughs> but it turns out uh, that it is. And that experience was so powerful that it really 
focused me on flavor and trying to understand why it is that things have the flavors they do and what it is that flavors tell us about the materials that we're actually encountering in the world. So what is the smell and what is a flavor? What's the difference between those things and and how can I talk about them intelligently? (laughs) Well, it it does turn out to be more complicated than our uh, usual language for that experience uh, would suggest. So we talk about flavor as this kind of unified experience of a food. Um, But it's actually several different sensory modalities that we're enjoying. One is taste, of course, Um, and we sometimes use the words taste and flavor uh, uh, interchangeably, but that's that's misleading because taste, strictly speaking, uh, is the set of sensations that we enjoy on our tongue. And there are relatively few of them, you know, maybe between 10 and 12, uh, people still argue about that. But the basic ones are sweet, sour, salty, bitter, savory, uh, the, the flavor of um, uh, meaty foods, uh, and then maybe a couple of others. Uh, so it's relatively limited. Uh, smell is um, the, uh, the sense that gives us information about the molecules that are not actually on our tongue, but are flying through the air in our mouths and also around us. Um, And there the possible uh, sensations are apparently endless, uh, or at least way more than we can count. Uh, So it's smell that gives us the tremendous variety of flavors. Flavor is combination of taste and smell. Uh, Taste gives you kind of the the uh, foundation of the experience, and then smell gives you the the superstructure. You know all the all the permutations, very and variations that we enjoy. So those those molecules that are flying around are called volatile molecules, and there's a lot of them. Chemists have been isolating them since the 1940s. And yet, sort of our understanding of how they worked and how flavor worked didn't really catch up until recently. How can that be? Well, uh, it has to do with the fact that uh, the the human body is a really complicated (laughs) mechanism. And so uh, it's one thing to isolate in uh, a material like a food molecule that we can detect and that has a very particular smell. Uh, But then understanding how it is that our brains interpret that, how we, first of all, how we detect it in the in the first place, and then how that information is uh, processed in the brain to give us a recognizable um, signal. So that chain of um, uh, signal processing, you might call it, uh, turns out to be really complicated. It's still being figured out. Uh, but and it was not until 2004 when I first started thinking about this book that um, the Nobel Prize was finally awarded to the two scientists who discovered the initial step in that whole process, that is to say the receptors that allow us to detect these molecules. So it's still very much an emerging science. How many of these volatile molecules have been isolated so far? And are there are there ones we still don't know about? <laughs> Yes, so so um, it, it's hard to put a number on it, but it would definitely be in the thousands that have been isolated and cataloged and 
um, uh, people know about them and know how to identify them using the right equipment. Uh, but, you know, a really interesting development uh, very recently is that uh, scientists have begun asking the question, are there molecules that we don't find in nature uh, or haven't come across yet that would still nevertheless have smells given our olfactory apparatus, the, you know, the machinery that we use to detect smells. And it, they've done some experiments and the answer is yes. They've, you know, made up completely crazy molecules that don't exist as far as we know otherwise, and they have smells. And they're learning how to figure out how to predict what those smells might be. So it's a really exciting time in, in this whole area. That's wild. That's as wild as something else I learned from your book from the very beginning, actually, which is that outer space smells. <laughs> so what are the very first smellable molecules out in the universe? And how did you know to go to outer space for them? Yeah, that's a, a question once I started writing the book that, that occurred to me partly because I started out life uh, or at least student life uh, as an astronomy major. And when I um, began to learn the nature of smell and the fact that these are particular molecules that are small enough to travel through the air, it, it ended up occurring to me, well, you know, when would these things have first shown up in the cosmos? And uh, I had no idea setting out that there would be an answer to that question, but it turns out that radio astronomers are people who are able to detect molecules in space. Uh, so they don't detect light, they detect um, the, the presence of particular molecules. And they've been doing a census of what's out there to be uh, detected for decades now. And there are several hundred different molecules that they've identified in the spaces between stars. And uh, it turns out that, you know, once the, the basic elements are created, uh, even though it probably takes them quite a while to find each other, when they find each other, they do hook up and, uh, <laughs> and form molecules that we would recognize on Earth. So things like uh, ammonia and mm -hmm. uh, hydrogen sulfide, the smell of, um, of eggs, cooked eggs. Uh, and also catalytic converters, so you know sometimes not as pleasant as eggs. Uh, small molecules like that, which are only three or four atoms, turn out to be pretty abundant in in space. And they, uh, they're as the years go by, and their you know uh, detection methods get better and better. They're finding more and more things, including molecules that we would think of as being, you know, really pleasant, um, uh, esters, which are the class of molecules that give fruits their particular aromas. They're finding alcohols in space as well. And it's, I guess, just in the nature of the elements and in the nature of carbon in particular, which is always forming the backbone of, of these molecules, uh, to just explore the possibilities of being together. And uh, uh, they're, they're doing that long before there are planets or plants or animals to, to generate them. 
What you said about hydrogen sulfide is curious because it gets at what I think is most interesting about smells. You described hydrogen sulfide as an eggy smell or that of a catalytic converter, but neither eggs nor catalytic converters were around when hydrogen sulfide came into being. And that's true for a lot of smells, right? They're grassy or meaty or fecal. But then you have the issue of like, well, some people have never smelled those things. Like, what about a vegan who's never tasted meat? So how, how do you handle that sort of odd issue of like figuring out a name for this thing that is not visible at all? <laughs> well, that's that's exactly the wonderful complication, which is that the connection between our language and our sensations is um, kind of arbitrary. You know, it, it sort of depends on where you encountered that molecule for the first time, and that's what you're going to associate it with. That's how your brain can kind of store it in the database, and then when it comes across that molecule again, it says, oh yeah, that was in grass or, uh, you know, a, a leaf or something like that. Uh, so it, it, it is very much a, uh, uh, an area where people are trying to understand, you know, whether we can overcome that uh, kind of accidental nature of the way we identify things and, and whether by, you know, really focusing on the sensations and on our language for them, maybe we can come up with a, a less arbitrary way of, of uh, talking about these things. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it can be really poetic, though, sometimes even in the opposite direction. Like I, you had this wonderful example involving ants in your introduction. So could you tell us the story of the ants? Yeah, yeah. Well, this was a, a wonderful demonstration uh, given by a chef, a Brazilian chef, who um, uh, has restaurants in uh, Sao Paulo, but also goes out into the countryside to find new ingredients to show to people in the city. And he went to the Amazon and uh, developed relationships with people there and got to know the kinds of things that they use to flavor their foods. And um, one of the things that they end up using to flavor their soups in particular in this area that, uh, that he happened to go to uh, was a kind of ant. And they just scoop up lots and lots of them, which apparently is not difficult, uh, and then put them in soup and, and flavor the soup. And it gi they give the soup a very particular uh, and powerful aroma, which reminded him of spices, herbs and spices, lemongrass and ginger in particular. He, he thought this was uh, the Amazonian version of lemongrass plus ginger, that combination. Uh, but the people in the Amazon have never encountered lemongrass or ginger. They don't grow there naturally. They have ants. And uh, so when he next visited, he brought some lemongrass and ginger for the people in the Amazon to smell and taste. And they they were delighted. They said, this, this is wonderful. It's just like our ants. So, you know, depending on whether you grow up in the Amazon or in Sao Paulo, the very same molecules are going to remind you of totally different things. I've had ants before in Thailand and ant eggs, but I never thought that they would taste different from an ant on the other side of the world, but it makes total sense. 
<laughs> well, yeah, that's that's the 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 thing that I didn't really realize until I began uh, delving into these things is that animals use these molecules that we kind of associate in a casual way with spices and herbs and so on. Uh, animals use these molecules as signals and uh, chemical weapons, uh, and so there's all these emanations out there. That, that do have to do with animals and plants kind of surviving in uh, a, a difficult world. And um, what we sometimes do when we cook with them is kind of overhear a little bit of that conversation or that argument. And what I tried to do in my book was just make more of that conversation um, evident so that you can pick up on it when you feel like it. I think that brings in almost like the central tenet of of smell, which is context. You can smell something in one context, like an odor that reminds you of sweaty feet, say in a gym locker and be repulsed. But in a different context, say you're at a fancy French restaurant and someone has just lifted a cheese dome, you have a completely different experience. So what does that tell us about, about the way we process smells and how we can use that to our advantage? Well, I, I guess it's it's just testimony to the fact that context really does matter, uh, and I, I think it's also um, uh, useful and I think really interesting to recognize that in fact you know sweaty feet and cheeses smell similarly because they have molecules in common because they're both uh, essentially emanations from animal bodies and animal bodies are made up of the same basic materials. And those materials, generally speaking, don't have smells themselves because they're very large molecules. They're too large to fly through the air and end up in our noses, but uh, they're susceptible to being broken down into smaller molecules that do fly through the air by um, microorganisms, by the microbiome in a, in a cheese cave and by the microbiome in our shoes. <laughs> so understanding that there is this kind of, you know, fundamental uh, source for these aromas, um, I think just adds to the interest and to our ability, I think, to, to notice little details and, and appreciate them in a way that we wouldn't otherwise. Sure. It's really funny, too, that, you know, sweaty feet is generally something you try to avoid. You know, you don't want your sweaty gym socks hanging around. But we seem to, like, run headfirst into these odors when they're attached to wheels of cheese. You know, it's almost like a, a deliberate choice. Do you think there's anything to that, that we want to eat things that smell gross in other contexts? <laughs> well, uh, I think so, actually. Uh, it's, you know, something that's not... not uh probably not possible to prove, but it does seem to me that, you know, um, the, the smells of um, animal materials breaking down are, you know, uh, generally speaking, uh, a sign that we should be careful about things and that maybe something bad is happening in the neighborhood. Um, but if we know it's coming from a cheese, then it's kind of like we can we can appreciate that sensation without worrying about the context, without worrying that there's danger. There's this uh, parallel, I think, in things like riding roller coasters or going to horror movies. You know, we mm. deliberately expose ourselves to 
sensations that would otherwise really be unpleasant. Um, but in those contexts, we enjoy them and we scream and, and have a great time. So I think with, with cheeses, it's, it's kind of similar where these are, uh, after all, really powerful, uh, sensations, which in, some contexts are, you know, are worrisome, but we can enjoy them for their own sake if we know that they're in a in a safer context. Mm-hmm. And it depends on the person too, on when you're experiencing that feeling or smelling a smell. Like maybe you love juniper on a hike in the woods, but you hate drinking it in gin, for example, for <laughs> obvious reasons. <laughs> yeah, when I was young, I uh, I got really sick shortly after having had a wonderful roast chicken dinner with oh, my family. No. And for the next, I don't know, maybe five, ten years, the smell of chicken just <laughs> put me off. I love it now, but but I had to relearn to uh, to enjoy it because the context in which I experienced it back then was so, uh, yeah, so unpleasant. It's funny how visceral that is. I had something similar with split pea soup, which is like less of less of a burden to give up than roast chicken. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, speaking of roast chicken, this is a wonderful transition to talking about the smells of cooking. Mm-hmm. That's what I like to smell the most. I do love a good perfume, but I like to to eat the flavors. Um, and so <laughs> we've touched on foods like cheese, which occur in a process you charmingly call bioalchemy. What happens when we cook something with heat, or as you call it, pyroalchemy? What's the most basic example of pyroalchemy in the kitchen? Ah, well, I have a, an absolute favorite example, and that's um, making caramel. So uh, you start with a, a pan and table sugar, which is this white solid that has no aroma whatsoever, uh, and you turn on the heat. So you're just adding energy. That's it. And then the the solid turns liquid and what was white turns transparent. And then you start to notice these aromas coming off the, the pan. And then at the same time, the, the that transparent liquid begins to turn brown. So you start with one molecule, sucrose, uh, simply add energy. The energy helps those molecules get broken down into smaller ones, which are reactive and react with each other in a kind of cascade to generate more and more and more complexity, including not just small molecules, but bigger ones. The, the color comes from, uh, from large polymers that, um, that look uh, brown to us. And, and the kitchen ends up filling with this intoxicating aroma uh, that wasn't there before and that consists of hundreds and hundreds of different molecules that that simple process has generated. So that's uh, starting out with one molecule and adding heat. And then if you imagine a roast chicken where you've got thousands of molecules to begin with and you add heat, then the possibilities are much, much greater. So that's the, the the basic thing that happens when we cook is that we take materials that are relatively flavorless because they're mostly built out of big molecules that don't have aromas, that don't have tastes. Uh, and then we use the, the uh, power of energy, heat, to break some of them down into molecules that give us tremendous pleasure. 
So how do you organize your thoughts or organize the smells when you smell a roast chicken or when you smell caramel? I know that there is this olfactory word called a bouquet. Are there like cooked bouquets? Yes, yes. That's in fact, I I think the best way to think about um, smell in general is that we're always smelling bouquets. We're almost never smelling single molecules. We're always smelling mixtures, um, and it depends on you know which element in that mixture or which molecule in that mixture is maybe most prominent. So it might be you know like the the red rose in a bouquet that's otherwise um, smaller pink flowers or something like that. Something may stand out uh, among the rest, but you're always experiencing a mixture. And um, I have to say that, you know, for the most part, I don't, uh, unless I'm kind of in analytical mode and trying to, you know, verify something that I've found uh, in the scientific literature to then put into the book, I'm just enjoying the bouquet. <laughs> and that's the, the wonderful thing about smell, I think, is that, um, you know, we, we evolved as creatures not to analyze uh, smells, but to detect them quickly and um, kind of place them quickly so that we know how to react if we need to react. And I think it's that act of synthesis that's the the wonderful thing about smell is taking all those different molecules, putting them together into an overall uh, impression that can just you know make us close our eyes and uh, and enjoy it. This is music to my ears, especially the part of my ears that turns off anything about like sommeliers and like wine smelling like certain things because I I just want to enjoy it if it smells good and it tastes good I would just I would like to drink it in peace <laughs> well it, it's wonderful to be learning about you know all these aspects of the sense of smell and how it is a composite experience that we're having that there are these different elements that are molecules that uh, that contribute to it uh, but then you know these days everything can be turned into uh, a sales pitch and <laughs> so the same thing is true uh, with with wines and with foods and um, uh, I, I think a lot of sometimes um, you know you can really if someone points out to you uh, when you're tasting wine a note in there that you just can't quite place that's that's making this particular wine really interesting um, then that can be a wonderful experience to kind of talk that out uh, between you and share share your um, perceptions and then kind of help each other perceive more than you would otherwise. That's a wonderful, a wonderful experience. But a lot of the time, it's just trying to convince you that something is more interesting than it actually is. <laughs> That's definitely true. Yeah. But there's one category of food I feel like doesn't get enough of a sales pitch, and that's fermented foods. Um, so maybe I'm hoping by sort of talking through the bouquets and the smells and like what's going on in like kimchi or natto or even the most skeevy to some people smells we can make them more appealing because they they need a sales pitch i think <laughs> well I, I think that's true uh part partly because and this gets back to how it is that we um make sense of these things 
if we don't experience them early in life, then we don't really have a context for them. And then when we're introduced to them uh, as grown-ups, and uh, it's something that doesn't ring a bell or doesn't satisfy a desire that we already have, then it can be uh, discombobulating. <laughs> so I think a big part of the, the job is simply convincing people to taste fermented foods repeatedly uh, and get to know both their commonalities, but also their differences and, you know, what, what makes them interesting, uh, each particular one. Mm -hmm. And I think, too, what the relationship is between something like a kimchi that's been in the fridge for a year to like a cured ham. Who doesn't love hamon iberico, you know, but they're not unrelated processes, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, one way to think of it is that uh, all these flavors, the flavors of fermented foods are are expressions of the vitality of the living world, uh, that no matter what you do, there's something going on. There's no such thing as a, a food that is stable. <laughs> uh, it's, it's always evolving. And what um, the microbes in fermented foods do is accelerate that and to to show the the potential of the the material you're dealing with uh, and hams are especially interesting because it's a cooperation between the microbes and the the meat itself the muscle cells themselves which are in of course, in the living animal, tremendously active and tremendously vital. And when they're turned into meat and stored for a year, that vitality doesn't completely go away. It, the, the leg doesn't move anymore, but there's a whole lot going on in there. And uh, uh, it can be a wonderful experience just to, to savor the, the smallest piece. Yeah. Yeah. I had a chance to taste a West German specialty not long ago that really tries to capture that vitality. <laughs> it's called Alewurst. And what's special about it is that they process the pork immediately after the butchering process. So the flesh is still warm. They call it Schlachtwarm, which literally means like slaughter warm. German is a charming language. Um, <laughs> and it was delicious. I'm not sure it tasted different from another salami, but but I feel like knowing about the process and knowing about the like the expertise that went into, you know, controlling that breakdown, controlling the decomposition just made me appreciate it a lot more, made me appreciate the average sausage a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. When we enjoy food and drink and when or we when we enjoy a perfume uh, or really when we're walking down the street, you know, we, we just kind of, we're, we're often on uh, autopilot. We just kind of say, yeah, that's a salami. Yeah, that's uh, somebody just put um, compost in their garden uh, or they're cooking fish or, or whatever. Um, but if you can stop and, and um, just imagine the, the swirls of molecules that are contributing to that, uh, thing that you're just barely noticing and then follow those swirls back to what it is that they're emanating from and what it is that uh, went into the making of that thing that they're emanating from. I mean, it's a, to me, just a, a wonderful way to remind ourselves that um, there's just so much 
going on all the time around us that we're mostly not aware of. And it would be, we would be driven crazy to pay attention to all of it all the time, but it's wonderful to be able to be kind of nudged out of our complacency and realize that there is something really amazing going on at that moment. We've got a link in the show notes to Harold McGee's latest book, Nosedive, which is now out in paperback. A couple years ago, I did an interview with a historian about the cultural implications of smell and geographical ways of thinking about smell maps. So there's a link to that too, as well as more writing on food than you should probably consume before dinner. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.